After a church service, a little boy came up to the preacher and he said, you know, pastor, when I get older, I'm going to give you some money. And the preacher said, well, thank you very much, but why do you want to do that? And the little boy blurred out. He said, well, my daddy said you're one of the poorest preachers he knows. <laughs> late bloomer there. That's all right. Better late than never. And they say out of the mouth of babes come some real gems. They certainly do. Well, this morning we're going to continue our series, our study in the book of Ephesians. We'd be kind of doing a section on blessings. So this is the fourth and final section. I call it Real Blessings Part 4. Father, I just praise you for all that's transpired up to this point. It was a real treat to see men excited for you, Lord. And we should be that excited. If they can get that excited at a football game, we certainly should be able to get that excited about you. And I pray by the end of this morning, we'll be excited for you and your kingdom. I pray that we will be set on fire. So I invite you, Holy Spirit, that you will come. I know for many this word will be challenging, but I know that it's the truth. And I ask that this thing's going to really set us free. And so I'm just thanking you for what you're going to do. And I just ask that you would now fill me from the soles of my feet to the crown of my head, that I truly would speak your words, your words in power and your words in authority. And I just ask that you would have your way. You're welcome here, Holy Spirit. And I just thank you now what's going to transpire. And I just praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Skip, can you play the video? I am absolutely convinced that the greatest blessing that the Father has given the believer is the Holy Spirit. And this morning, we're going to just be given one example of why the Holy Spirit is such a great blessing to us. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 13. This, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there, or you can look at the board. And Paul wrote these words, And you were included in Christ when you first heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal. The promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit. Now watch this. Guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. That simply means that when Jesus Christ comes back, the final believer will have come in and we will receive our inheritance. And it says to the praise of his glory. Now as I like to say, these verses are freighted. They are loaded, and we certainly are going to tear them apart. But before we do that, I want to frame this thing first, these two verses. I want us to look at the big idea. I want us to look at the main point of these two verses. And the main point of these two verses is this. If you are a believer, you should be the most optimistic person on planet Earth. When the Apostle Paul wrote these words, he was languishing in a Roman prison Cell. Next stop, the brutal emperor Nero, who was shortly to put air between his head and his shoulders. Paul's future, when he wrote these words on planet Earth, was very bleak. In fact, Paul was not looking forward to a wonderful retirement, basking in the sun somewhere on the Mediterranean in an old folks' retirement home. 
That was nowhere on the radar screen for the Apostle Paul. Yet I want you to know that Paul did not feel sorry for himself. Paul was not crying the blues. In fact, Paul was quite excited about his soon departure from planet Earth. And you say, why would Paul be excited? Most of us wouldn't be excited about our departure from planet Earth. Now hear me on this. The reason why Paul was excited about his departure from this planet was because he knew. No, no. He knew that the best was yet to come for him. He was absolutely convinced in here, in his heart, that a great inheritance was awaiting him. Now, let me ask you a question. And the question is this. What is the hope? What kind of hope does an unbeliever have? Have you ever thought of that? What real hope does an unbeliever have? The best case scenario is this. The best case scenario is that they just have an awesome life here on planet Earth. I mean, they have a high-powered job. They make lots of money. They get lots of toys. They become famous. They're influential. They have an awesome and wonderful family life. They live till they're 100 years old, and they spend their final days frolicking somewhere in the Atlantic off the Florida coast and playing Satan's game golf. And then what happens to them? They die. They go six feet under. They become food for worms. And they lose complete and total consciousness as if they never, ever lived. They will never remember anything that occurred on planet Earth that they were even alive. That is the best case scenario, by the way, for the unbeliever. But the Bible paints a different picture for the unbeliever. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus Christ tells us the story of a rich man. And this rich man has a lot of time on his hands, and he's trying to figure out how he's going to get richer. So he builds bigger and better barns so that he can have more and more money so that he can just eat, drink, and be merry. And suddenly a voice cries out, you fool. That's the voice of the father. You don't want to hear that. You don't want to hear God say to you, you fool. Why would God call this man a fool? I'll tell you why he called him a fool. Number one, he assumed that he would live maybe till 70 or 80 years. Bad assumption. I am blown away, blown away by the sheer number of Christians who are shocked that somebody died. I can't believe so-and-so died. Guess what? I'm surprised that I'm alive today. You only are given today. He was a fool because God said to him, tonight, you moron. Your soul's required of you. That's what he's saying in the Greek. You moron. Do you understand that the only time you're guaranteed is today? You should not be shocked that your mate, the person sitting next to you, won't be here next week. But you know why he's a fool? I'll tell you why he's really a fool, because he didn't prepare his soul for eternity. He lived for now. He wasn't ready for eternity. And because he wasn't ready for eternity, because he lived selfishly, because he lived for himself, 
He would be judged and he would be cast into the lake of fire. Skip, can you show the picture? Now, I know many people will be horrified by the picture. That is the picture that helped, that, that the Bible paints of what happens to the unbeliever. And as horrifying as that picture is, I guarantee you the reality is much worse. But you know what makes hell so bad? Let me tell you what makes hell so bad. You'll have your whole entire life to think about how you wasted your life. How you wasted your life on your puny kingdom called self. And more than that, you know what makes hell terrifying? There's no hope. There is no hope of getting out. That is what is going to happen to the unbeliever. Now, you know what the problem we have here in America? The problem we have here in America is life is really pretty nice, isn't it? And we kind of think that that's the way that life should be because we live in a blessed country, we do. And I thank God for the veterans who have fought for us. We, we, we don't even, we, you know, we just take for granted the incredible blessings that we have. But we have the idea that life should be happy. In fact, if you go door knocking, I, I ask you tomorrow when you go to work, ask someone what the point of life is, what the purpose of a life is. You know what the average person will tell you? To be happy. We think that the goal of life is to be happy. And that, you know, to have a nice comfortable life, to have a great family life, to kind of make our mark in this world. And so you know what's happened to the American gospel? Now, please hear me on the rest of this message. You know what's happened to the American gospel? We've kind of made it the American gospel. I call it the Happy Meal gospel. No, I, I, it's, it's a Happy Meal gospel. And it, it kind of goes like this, that, you know, you make a one-time profession of sin, you know, that you've kind of messed up. You say a sinner's prayer. You get your get-out-of-hell-free card, right? And then Jesus, okay, this is, Jesus is going to come. And Jesus, you know, he's all for you. And he's going to help you have your dreams and your goals and your desires. And you're just going to have this nice, happy, wonderful life. And so you run from this nice, happy, wonderful life. And all's death is is a short transition to having a more wonderful, happy, heavenly life. Isn't that awesome? Wouldn't that just be awesome? That's just kind of the way it works. I want you to know. There's not one iota of New Testament scripture that ever paints that picture for the believer. Not one, not one iota of New Testament scripture that paints the happy life. In fact, let me show you what the New Testament does paint. I I am just so overwhelmed and burdened by what people are hearing. They're so ill-prepared for life. But let me just give you a short synopsis of what the New Testament paints for the life of the unbeliever. First, Jesus, because everybody likes the red letter edition. So this is Jesus, his synopsis for the Christian life. Skip scripture number one. Let's, here we go. He says in John 15, final night on planet earth, he's just giving his disciples the rah-rah speech, okay? So here's his rah-rah speech. You see, tell me how good of a coach he is. If the world hates you, gentlemen, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it. But you, my disciples, gentlemen, are no longer part of this world. You are not a part of this world. I chose you to come out of the world. So it hates you. It hates you. Do you remember what I told you, men? 
A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me naturally, naturally, absolutely they will persecute you. And if they listened to me, they would have listened to you. Then Jesus says this. That's that's an awesome, encouraging scripture. Thank you, Jesus. Then Jesus says this. Next one. John 16, 33. I told you, men, I told you this so that you may have peace. No, notice where you're going to get the peace. Did he say peace in the world? Did you see that? Where do you say the peace comes from? In me. See, there's not going to be peace out there. There's not going to be peace in your circumstances. There's only peace in Jesus when you're tied into the vine. Here on earth, you will have hell, trials, sorrows. But take heart. Take heart heart. I have overcome the world and if Jesus is overcoming he's in you, you will overcome it. Now listen to what Paul says. Paul gives us some encouragement too. Acts 14, 21, 22. After preaching the good news in Derby and making many disciples, Paul and Barnabas returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch of Poseidon where they strengthen the believers. They encourage them to continue in the faith. Watch this now. Reminding them that we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of heaven. We must. That, are, are you a disciple? You must. I must enter many hardships to enter the kingdom of heaven. Next one, Paul says this. He wants to encourage Timothy. This is his last letter on planet earth. And here's Paul giving the rah-rah speech to his disciple Timothy. Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life, Timothy, in Christ Jesus, will have a happy life. Oh, no, no, it says suffer persecution. Excuse me. But evil people, now watch this though. See, watch the evil people and imposters will flourish. Have you ever wondered why the evil prosper? He tells you this. The evil are going to prosper temporarily, they will deceive others and themselves be deceived. Isn't that something? Now, Peter says this. Listen to what Peter says. Just, I just want to just be an equal opportunity guy here, all right? So Peter goes this way. He says, be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead. Watch this, though. Even though you have to endure many trials for a little while, these trials will show that your faith is genuine. You know what the most important thing is to the father, Papa? Do you know what the most important thing is? Your soul. Your soul. The maturity of your soul. He, he, you, know, you, you put a huge smile on his face when he sees you and I having faith, trusting him in spite of pressure, in spite of suffering and persecution. Peter then says this. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad, for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering, so that you will have wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it's revealed to all the world. So be happy when you are insulted for being a Christian, for then the glorious spirit of God rests upon you. If you suffer, however, it must not be for murder or stealing, making trouble, or prying into other people's affairs. But it is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Praise God for the privilege of being called by his name. Now how many want to sign sign up and follow Jesus? I need to have an altar call right now. If I can just get somebody up here, we'll play just as I am. And you come on up and you sign up. (laughs) Seriously, how often though is this talked about? 
No, no. How often, how sad that we won't even talk to you about it because it empties the seats. And instead, we haven't prepared people for what really, really awaits them. And I apologize for that. The point of all this, I want you to understand, if you're a believer, if you are a believer, you need to be different. I need to be different. No, no. I need to be different. I need to stand against the world's priorities and values. We should be these huge blinking neon signs. Warning, warning to the world, going the wrong way. Turn it around before you perish and pass away forever and ever and ever. And if you do this, you will be ridiculed. No, no. You will be persecuted and you will suffer but this shouldn't be a problem. Why would this be a problem for the believer? We are here to sacrifice our life. I I love those Marines. They're going, hoorah! But you know, they're there and they've made the decision. Can you believe it? They're willing to sacrifice their life so you can live. No, that's what they're doing. These guys are going to go to war. They blow my mind. And we should be that excited that we are giving our lives to Jesus Christ. We're here to sacrifice our lives for Christ so that his kingdom can advance. That is what we're here for. And, you know, really, what are we sacrificing, quite honestly? Have you ever read 2 Peter? Awesome book. Awesome book. Good bedtime reading. You know what basically Peter said? Let me give it to you in a nutshell. 2 Peter. Everything will burn. That's what he says. He says there's going to be a new heaven, new earth. Everything will burn. So just put it right here. Bam! It will burn. We're going to, in fact, I'm going to have the elders. We're going to just put signs everywhere. It will, I'm going to, when you walk out, you're going to be surprised. you know what it's going to say in your car? It will burn. <laughs> See, and once you get it, it's all going to burn. What? What in the world do you think we're, sacri- we're sacrificing nothing? So what do we care? Why do we care so much what people think? You know what? The only thing that's pulling out of here are the souls of men and women and children. And in the end, the only thing that will matter is what did you and I do with Jesus Christ? Did we advance his kingdom Did we positively affect our spouse, our children, our neighbors, and our coworkers for Jesus Christ? See, that's all that's going to matter. You know, so many of us feel like, woo-hoo, loser. I'm a loser. I'm not one of those bigwigs. I'm not one of those powerful guys. I'm not one of those wealthy guys. I'm not one of those well-known guys. And you know what? And the world thinks that we're losers. world always has. The world thought that Jesus was a loser, by the way. The world thought that Jesus was a loser. But you know what Jesus said numerous times in his parable? He said he he had a great line. You know what he said? He said, the first will be last and the last will be first. He said, nanner, nanner, nanner. When he comes back, the tables are going to be turned. No, no, that's what he said. The tables are going to be turned. You may be wearing loser now, but it's going to be the big W. Win. Win. No, you get the big W. You're going to be a big 
winner in the end. And Paul goes on to say, he says this in verse 14. Skip, put it up. He says, and the believer, he said, if you're a true believer, he says, there is a great, great inheritance awaiting you. And this is the fifth and great promise to the believer. The fifth and great promise. You know, you say, and I think most of us know what an inheritance is. An inheritance is something good. It's something that we all want. It's something valuable, and you're probably wondering, okay, Paul tells us that we're going to have this incredible inheritance when we die and when we see Jesus, and you're saying, well, what is that inheritance? Well, to be brutally truthful with you, the scripture doesn't give a lot of detail about the inheritance, but let me just give you a small preview of coming attractions, all right? Just a small preview of coming attractions. Revelation chapter 21. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. Skip, can you put up Revelation chapter 21 on the big board? Here we go. It says, watch this now. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and the new earth for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. There it is again. So remember, it's all going to burn because everything that you see here, it's just telling you right here, Revelation 21, all of the old earth. Can you imagine your trophies? Have you ever, do you have a trophy case? Just imagine it's molten, melted, you know, it's just blob. It's all that's going to be. Your titles, your degrees, ashes. No, no, we, we have these fabulous, tro- you know, the Super Bowl trophy looks incredible, doesn't it? But you know what it's going to look like at the end? A blob. And then it says, and the sea was also gone. Isn't that amazing? Three-fourths of the world is the ocean, the seas. But there's not going to be any more. It means there's going to be no more separation. No more separation between God and people. And I saw the holy city in the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throat saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them. And they will be his people. God himself will be with them. I'm going to talk a little bit about that more in a moment. Because that's an incredible, that's an incredible inheritance. I'll talk about that in a mo- more in a moment. Now watch this. He's going to wipe away every tear from your eyes. There will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these are gone forever. You're going to experience perpetual joy. Can you imagine experiencing perpetual joy. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. I don't know what your past is, but whatever it is, it's going to be all wiped away, all gone. It's a new beginning, a new day. That's what's awaiting you. And then Paul says this very enigmatic statement. Watch this. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 12. Paul says this. He says, now we see things imperfectly, Like a puzzling, better, blurry reflection in a mirror. But then we will see with perfect clarity. All that we know now is partial and incomplete. But then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. You know, I can't speak for you. But I'm going to tell you the most incredible part of the inheritance that I'm looking forward to is that I will know Jesus. No, no. I will finally know Jesus. Paul has a crescendo in the scripture in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10. He says, I want to know Jesus. 
I want to know Jesus. I want to know him so much. I want to know the power, he said, that raised him from the dead. I want to know Jesus Christ so much that I'm willing to share in his suffering even to the point of death. I want to know him. Why did Paul want to know him so much like that? See, he said, so that I can experience the resurrection from the dead and live in his presence forever. Do you know what it will be like to be in the presence of Jesus? Life! aliveness. You know, someone has asked me, what will heaven be like? I said, the only thing I know for certain is that everything in heaven will be alive. The trees, the plants, they'll be alive. They'll be pulsating with life. Wherever you go, wherever you walk, it'll be pulsating with life. No more deadness. Oh, we all know what I'm talking about. No more deadness on the inside. For the first time ever, you will experience a perpetual shalom in here. A perpetual contentment and satisfaction. Now let me move to the challenge. You know, I've just ripped off some pretty cool things. See, here's the real question you have. Here's the real question that I had. How do you know? How do you know, Frank, that that's really true? How do you know that that's really going to happen? And you know what? Paul answers that question in the second half of verse 13. In the first part of verse 14, he says this. Now watch this. And when you believed in Jesus, so that's critical, when you really believed, you were marked in Jesus with a seal. That seal is the Holy Spirit. Now watch this. The Holy Spirit is a deposit or down payment by God the Father, guaranteeing that he will give us the inheritance that he promised. Now I don't have time this morning to go into a theology of the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk a lot more about the Holy Spirit as we unfold Ephesians. But let me just say this about the Holy Spirit. Paul first tells us that God the Father gives us the Holy Spirit when we believe. So if you believe, you have the Holy Spirit in here. And first of all, he is a seal. You know what that means? That is a mark of approval. It's far better than the good housekeeping seal of approval. You might like that. But... The Father gives us the Holy Spirit as a seal that he approves of us. See, if you have the Holy Spirit and he's testifying, you know, people go, I just don't know if God loves me. How can I know? And then we'll say, God loves you. He loves you. He loves you. And you're saying, "I I, I don't get it. Because, see, I can't bark it into you. But, see, when you're a believer, the Holy Spirit comes in you and he testifies. I know. God loves me. I know God approves of me. That's one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit. But then Paul moves on. He not only says that he gives us the seal of the Holy Spirit, but then he says the Holy Spirit is a down payment, guaranteeing my inheritance. Now, we should know what a down payment is. How many people have helped sold a house here? Just raise your hand if you sold a house. It's all right. You know, you're showing the house. You're showing the house. No one's doing squat with your house, right? Then all of a sudden, someone looks at your house. 
wow, I really like this place. And they put a deposit down. They put a down payment of $10,000. How many get excited about that? See, it's really not exciting. The 10000 is, you know what's exciting about that down payment? It means more greenbacks are coming soon. You're going to get the whole enchilada. See, it just tells you that something awesome is waiting. The Holy Spirit's awesome. But the Holy Spirit is just a down payment. Just a down payment. A foretaste of what really awaits us. Let me end this way. What I would love if I could give you any present. The present I would give you is five minutes in heaven. I mean, if I could. I would love to give each one of you just five minutes where you get to see some of the glories of heaven and you begin to experience some of the incredible things that Papa has for you. Just five minutes. And then after five minutes, you would whoop, be back here on planet Earth in your body. What do you think would happen if that really happened to you? What do you think you would be like? I guarantee you it would change you. No, it would change you. You would feel sorry for people if you see them, you know, driving like nutcases, you know, speeding down the road. I always watch people, and they're, and they're laying on the horn. I go, what, what, are you, what are you in a rush for? You're just going to hell. I mean, what are you in a rush for? <laughs> no, you, you start shaking your head. Wake up and smell the roses. See, if you had five minutes in heaven, you'd realize that people are like Don Quixote chasing windmills. And you feel sorry for them. They're wasting their lives. If you really had five minutes in heaven, you'd get it. We wouldn't, be, we wouldn't even be having this discussion. You'd realize that everything that people are, you're going to go home and watch these idiots banging heads. It's football. <laughs> what for? So they get a metal trophy that melts? Some money that burns? No, no, think this thing through. See, once you get it, no, once you really get it, it changes your life. And you're no longer just chasing this stuff that's ridiculous. And you begin to rearrange your priorities eternally. You line them up with Jesus. It's a life changer. No, no, it, it will change your life. I promise you. And you know what the Holy Spirit is? See, the Holy Spirit in you and me, he's constantly reminding me of eternity. See, I don't know what the Holy Spirit's doing in you, but I'll tell you what he's doing in me. He's constantly looking. See, I can see Jesus when he, when he was on planet Earth, and he sees the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he just sees these idiots. Well, I got four camels. How many camels you got? And he's going, knock, knock. Hello, anybody home? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The Holy Spirit in you testifies that eternity is real. Amen. It's real. The inheritance is real. It's more real than the chair you're sitting in. I'll end with this scripture, Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. And the spirit you've been given does not lead you into fear so that you become a slave again. But rather the spirit you received, the Holy Spirit you received, brought about your adoption to sonship. And the spirit cries out on you, Abba, Father, Abba, Father, 
Papa God. And the spirit testifies with your spirit that you indeed are a child of God and you are heirs, co-heirs with Jesus Christ. I ask you in conclusion, do you really have the Holy Spirit? That's the problem I see in the American church. It's not regenerate. I don't believe it's born again. I don't believe half the clergy is born again anymore. Because we don't understand the beauty and the power of the Holy Spirit. Because if we did, we would understand we have everything. Everything. And we would start living victoriously. Father, I can't make it real, Lord. I know that. I hate to see deadness. It was so exciting to see those Marines excited. And the reason why we got excited is because we knew the Spirit was there. You can't do that. There's no God like Jehovah. There's no God like Jehovah. There's no God like Jehovah. You can't get excited about these things without the Spirit of God. And I pray that the Spirit is in a person that you even become more alive and circumcise anything in their life that's keeping the Holy Spirit from being released. And if a person truly is not born again, they might think that they know Jesus, but they really don't. And they now know from what's just been preached that they don't really have the Spirit of God. And they want that life. They want that. That even now, they'll begin. All they got to do is just reach out. Jesus, Jesus, You're my God. You're my Savior. I recognize you died on the cross for my sins. And I receive that I'm now yours. Come and have the Holy Spirit in me. That I might have that life eternal. I ask for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.